Well, a very warm welcome to everyone to our carol service here for 2022 here at Dundalk Baptist Church. And a very warm welcome especially to our listeners on Dundalk FM who join us for quite a few years now. And we hope you're having a wonderful Christmas with your family. And that by sharing in this carol service with us, that you're reminded about what Christmas is really all about. And that you can rejoice in the great gift that God has given us in sending his son. As we go through the service, there are a number of very well-known and maybe some not-so-well-known Christmas carols, a few very, very uh, anticipated surprises, which are all good. And then in between the carols, some of our members are going to come and read scripture readings, which trace through the story of God promising to send his son and then uh, sending his son to us. Uh, so let's stand and begin our service with a very well-known carol, Joy to the World, The Lord is Come. first reading is going to be from Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put me here with, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Our next carol is Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and each verse reminds us of the wonder of what God has done in sending Christ to us. Let's stand and sing together.
Reading from Genesis chapter 12, starting on first verse. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord has spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haram, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Sechem, as far as the Terebinth tree of Moreh, and the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord, where the appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mount east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, going on still towards the south. Our next carol asks a question, who is it that was born? Who is he in yonder stall? Let's stand and sing. Next reading is Isaiah 9, 
Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterwards more heavily oppressed her. By the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior sandal from the noisy battle and the garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel for fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Amen. Let's stand for our next carol. This is probably the most famous carol associated with Christmas. Michaela is going to lead us on the piano. Silent night, holy night. Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock 
in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. That prophecy from Micah chapter 5, given hundreds of years before Jesus was born, specifically says where he would be born, and it was in the little town of Bethlehem. Let's stand and sing. Next reading is from Matthew, uh, second chapter, starting at verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jer Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In, Jer in Bethlehem of Judea, for, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by, by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel." Every year we look forward to the special song that the ladies have prepared for us. So as they gather to uh, assemble themselves around the microphones, uh, we are going to look forward to it. So just give them a few minutes to do all of that. And Michaela again is going to lead them on the, the piano.
had uh, surprises. That was a very pleasant surprise. You've been even nicer surprise now because some of the children are going to come and sing to us. And again, bear with us as we get the microphones arranged at a child-centered height, I suppose would be the way we would describe that. And they've been really practicing for this. I heard them singing and they really are good. And I know they're going to sing really extra loud. Right, Albert? Yeah. Extra loud, yeah? Good. to the Lord in prayer for a moment here. Heavenly Father, how we do thank you that we can sing these songs that remind us of what you have done for us, that we get to celebrate in just a couple weeks' time the birth of Jesus, our Savior. And so we pray, Lord, that as we think for a moment about what Christmas is all about, that you would help us to dwell on these things, that you would not let this holiday season go by us without recognizing what it's all about. We ask that you would do that for us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the traditions that my family has is near the end of November, we watched the 1954 movie White Christmas, starring Bean Crosby, uh, Danny Kaye, Rosemary Clooney, and uh, Vera Ellen. It's just a, a, a feel-good movie that gets you in the mood for Christmas. In fact, most Christmas movies are feel-good movies. Each Christmas season, we try to watch as a family Elf, um, Mickey's Christmas Carol, which is my favorite Christmas movie, Home Alone, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the 1966 uh, cartoon, The Grinch Who Stole Christmas, and I'm sure you guys could add uh, many other movies to your favorites as well. And generally, Christmas movies are feel-good movies. That's, that's the atmosphere of this season. Charles Dickens, the man who wrote A Christmas Carol, once wrote, quote, I have always thought of Christmas time, when it has come round, as a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable time, the only time I know of in the long calendar of the year when men and women seem, by one consent, to open their shut-up hearts freely. And then he says that during this time, people think of each other, quote, as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. This attitude of good nature and goodwill should be ours. It should be ours all year round, but by and large, it's most evident during this Christmas season. Charitable donations go up. People want to give others things. Generosity is just on people's minds. While this attitude is good and kind and appropriate, the general overtone is transferred over to the very center, the very reason that Christmas exists. And so people with doting faces look to nativity scenes with 
expressions of, ah, that sweet baby Jesus. Look at the sheep. Look at the goats. See how he's lying in a manger. And the birth of Jesus becomes a precious moments nativity scene. Oh, everyone who doesn't know what precious moments figurines are, looking it up on their phones, and that's okay. If you don't know what a precious moments figurine is, I encourage you to look it up and you'll see. That's what we've turned it into. But in so doing, we've hidden the very reason Christmas is necessary under layers and layers of doughy-eyed figurines, songs of Christmas cheer, and the overarching tone that Christmas is ultimately about giving and kindness. Now, many of you have probably come here anticipating a, a little talk about sweet baby Jesus being laid in a feeding trough surrounded by a bunch of animals and some shepherds come to visit him, right? It's a hallmark scene. But all of that hides the dark side of Christmas. All of that is merely a distracting veneer so that we don't pull back the curtain to find that the reason Christmas even exists is because of rebellion. It's because of idolatry. It's because of sin. It's not just any rebellion. It's not just any sin. In fact, Christmas exists because of your sin and my sin, your rebellion and my rebellion. There's something intrinsically wrong with humanity, and we all know this to be true. Look at the world stage, and what do you see? Evil and corrupt leaders forcing their agendas uh, on their own people. War, genocide, human trafficking, stealing of land. And make no mistake, in the implementation of their global plans, you are mere pawns to be sacrificed on the road to establishing their hellish utopia. In fact, it was just a couple months ago that Yuval Noah Harari, a key advisor to Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum, said on a podcast, we just don't need the vast majority of the population. And so evil reigns in the hearts of the highest in the land, but it also reigns in the smallest. Go from that global stage to your own home. Parents, did you ever have to teach your children to be selfish? Did you ever have to teach your kids to say no when you ask them to do something? Did you ever have to teach them to throw a fit when they don't get their way? Did you have to teach them to lie? The answer to all of those is no. Instinctively, our cute little angels know how to be rebels. We are all depraved, sinful humans whose hearts are desperately wicked. Since I moved to this country eight years ago, many people have asked me what I do, and I tell them, well, I'm a pastor at Dundalk Baptist Church. And their response, almost without fail, is, oh, so you're a holy man. <laughs> and my answer is, no, I am not. My heart is corrupt. I am a sinner just like you are. There is nothing good in me to be called a holy man. I am but a destitute sinner rescued by a gracious God. All humanity stands in the same boat. Sinners in desperate need of a Savior. But let me push this a little, a little further and ask, what is the essence of our problem? What is the essence of our problem? As we dig deeper and deeper into the recesses of the heart of man, what do we find at the root of our sinfulness, our corruption? I think the answer is this. And I'll show you why in just a minute. But here's my answer. What's at the core of what is wrong with us? Here's my answer. At the core of our depravity is the desiring, the loving, the preferring of created things over the glory of God. We want everything that's not God. Husband, wife, children, job, money, sex, drugs, a new car, a nicer home. Fill in the blank. 
We desire the glory of these things, many of which are not bad things. They might be good things, but we attempt to find our ultimate pleasure in created things. We desire to be satisfied by these created things over the glory of God such that we are in awe of the flame of a flickering candle when the sun is shining right behind you. And so the call of the Bible is to stop being enthralled by a flame that can easily be blown out by a gentle breeze and turn around and be warmed by the sun, bask in the radiance of the sun, enjoy the glow of the sun, let your path be lit by the sun. We are to desire the infinite glory of God above everything and everyone. More than wife, or husband, or son, or daughter, or father, or mother, or sister, or brother, or job, or money, or any gift that might be waiting for you under a tree right now. God is infinitely to be preferred over everything. Yet we close our eyes, we turn our backs, and we begin chasing some new shiny thing. What you love most in this world will be your God. All right, let me show you where I'm getting this from. In in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, he writes this in chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. This is what he says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So that's us. That's us. That's you and me apart from the grace of God. We are ungodly and unrighteous, and wrath is being stored up against us. Then Paul goes on to say this. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So, No one can stand before God and say, I'm sorry, I just didn't know. I didn't know. Because the entire universe is crying out in song to the glory of God. Though we might stand amazed at the billions and billions of galaxies to the microscopic subatomic particles, these are all signposts pointing to the one who made them. He is the one who gets the glory. Paul continues in verse 21. He says, For although they knew God, they knew God, that he was to be infinitely preferred above all these created things, they did not honor him. And the word there is the word we normally translate as glorify. They did not glorify him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their hearts were foolish and were darkened. So follow the argument here with me. Sinful unrighteous men and women suppress, they they hold down the truth that everything in creation points to him, calls us to glorify him, draws our attention upward to him, points to the fact that he is the most desirable being in the universe. But we suppress that knowledge and we amuse ourselves with toys and sex and drugs and power and spouse and a myriad other things. And so we want the candle and not the sun. Paul then goes on to say this, and listen carefully here because this is what I'm basing my, my definition on that I gave earlier. Remember, I said that at the core of our depravity is the desiring, the loving, the preferring of created things over the glory of God. Now, listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.23. He says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So they exchanged it. They gave it up. The all-satisfying, never-ending, all-consuming joy of God. He said, no, I want food. Give me alcohol. Give me money. 
I want power. Give me a spouse. I would trade God for anything in this world. And this is the deal you've already made. It's not even a deal that you have to make consciously. The deal is evident. The exchange is manifest by how we live. What your heart desires most is what you've traded the glory of God for. C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, once made a very astute observation. This is what he wrote. He said, quote, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. This is your condition and my condition. We are God-haters by birth who would gladly give him up to make mud pies in a slum. Now, perhaps you've heard that sin is breaking God's law. It's about doing or not doing something, and there's truth to that. John writes in 1 John 3, 4, he says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And so when we sin, we break God's law. When he says don't lie and we lie, that is sin. But at its root, the core is still the same. The moment we lie, we desire something more than God. Maybe it's the desire to get out of trouble. Maybe it's the approval of people. But at that moment, we've made the exchange and we desire something more than God, more than his approval. And I think this is borne out when we think about the greatest commandment. And Jesus was asked that question by a Pharisee. Well, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus answered in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven: You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. You shall love God with all your heart. More than just the heart, but not less. God must have the prime seat of your affections so that your desire is for him above everything. And to fail to do so is to live as an idolater, which is my natural state and yours. Now, perhaps you think this is too depressing of a Christmas sermon Perhaps you think this paints humanity in too low of a state, that you and I are, are sinful rebels willing to spend our lives grasping at sand instead of embracing the infinite glory of God. And I am sorry because I have not done justice to how depraved we really are. This is the dark side of Christmas. This is our condition, just as it was the condition of humanity at the very first Christmas. Listen to how the Apostle John describes the very first Christmas in John 3.19. He writes, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. All right? That's Christmas. That's Christmas. The light has come into the world. That's Christmas. John describes Jesus as light. So in John chapter 1, verse 3, writing about Jesus, he says, All things were made through him, and without him not anything made that was made. And then in verse 4, he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then in verse 6, he mentions John the Baptist, who came to testify and bear witness about Jesus. But again, the Apostle John uses the description of light. And so John the Baptist came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, meaning John the Baptist, but came to bear witness about the light, meaning Jesus. Right? So for G John, Jesus is the light. So when John says, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, this is Christmas. Okay, But here's how the rest of that sentence goes. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. They loved 
darkness. The greatest commandment, you shall love God with all your heart. God comes into the world and they love darkness. They exchanged light for darkness. And so we look at the nativity scenes around us and we think, oh, you know, there's baby Jesus in a manger. Herod hears that Jesus has been born and a decree goes out to kill every baby boy under two years of age. They loved the darkness rather than the light. This is the dark background against which the light of Christmas shines. This is the reason Christmas even exists. Lost sinners in rebellion against their king, upon whom judgment will come for their disobedience and idolatry, are in need of a savior. And Christmas is the arrival of that king. Christmas is the birth of that savior. Before Jesus was born, an angel appeared to Joseph and told him that Mary will indeed bear a son. And the angel says in Matthew 1.21, And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves. Yahweh is his covenantal name for his people. And who do his people need saving from? Was it the Romans? Was it the political puppets like Herod and Pilate? No. It was not from their physical enemies, but from their sin. He will save them from themselves. The Gospel of Matthew continues, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, don't let that part just kind of blow right by you. So horrific is our sin. So enslaved are we to sin that no mere man or woman could free humanity from its grip. Our sin required that God himself enter into his own creation in the person of Jesus so that he might save us from our sins. So our, our I, I, idolatrous, glory-exchanging hearts could only be dealt with by the God-man. And how did he do that? Well, not by going around saying, well, here are the ten things that you can do to make up for your choosing to love other things more than God. You just have to do these things and you're okay. Not at all. What did he do? Jesus took the sins of all those who would believe on him. He took them on himself and he bore the punishment for those sins on himself on the cross so that we might be given a new heart, a heart that actually loves God. When you tell your three-year-old, don't draw on the wall or there will be consequences, And then the moment you turn your back, what do they do? They start drawing on the wall. The good and loving parent will bring those consequences to bear. Don't think that just because consequences have not fallen upon you for a lifetime of rejecting God and living contrary to his ways, that they won't come. Punishment and judgment will come unless another stands in your place, unless one says, No, I will endure the punishment on their behalf. That's what Jesus did. His death on the cross was not just another death. The Romans crucified thousands of people. But his was different. Because on the cross, he bore the punishment of the sins of his people so that they might be saved from their sins. God, through the prophet Ezekiel, prophesied of a time when this would happen, but he describes it in terms of a change of heart. And so we read in Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, he says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so this is what we need. We need new hearts. Among the many other things, that is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Forgiveness of sins and a new heart. New desires. New love so that the great exchange of Romans 1 is reversed. 
I don't want to find my, my ultimate joy and happiness in created things. That joy fades away. I always need a new fix. I want to give it up to see Jesus, to delight in Jesus, to be warmed by the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Give me that unending, never-fading, all-consuming, pure delight in Him. That's what happened to the Apostle Paul. Before he was converted, he hated Christians. He actively pursued their imprisonment and their death. But then he's converted. He sees Jesus now with, with new eyes. And he sees so clearly that he can write to the Christians in Philippi and he can say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, what does that mean? It means even though he writes this letter from prison, he, if he gets to continue on in life, great. He gets to work and live for Christ. But if he loses his life, if he's killed, if he should die, so what? He gets the one who held the prime seat of his affections. He gets God. Paul refused to make that great exchange of Romans 1 even for his life. I can keep my life and reject God or get God and give up my life. And without hesitation, Paul says, I choose God. Take my life. I don't care. I get God. Christmas is just two weeks away. Kids are growing in the excitement and anticipation to open presents. You get to spend time with family and friends. That may be a good or not so good thing, I guess. But remember, on that Christmas day, the reason we celebrate, the reason we celebrate this at all is because God had to deal with your sin and my sin, and he did so by becoming a man in the person of Jesus, whose birth we celebrate on Christmas Day. And so in the end, the real Christmas story turns out to be a feel-good story but only when you see it against the dark backdrop of your own sin. Let's go ahead and close in prayer, and then we'll sing our final song. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would help us to recognize how we have made that great exchange, that we live our lives not desiring you, that we would rather have things, that our hearts desire stuff, that we know that even whatever we get for Christmas this year and a year's time, we will want other things because they never satisfy. Lord, we pray that you would open eyes to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ and that many would see the all-satisfying, pure delight that you are. And that we would be like the Apostle Paul, who said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain, because I get the one who held that prime seat of my affections. I get to be with Jesus. Forgive us of our sins. Every one of us. Nobody lives a day without sinning against you because our hearts are always looking for something other than you. Our hearts are always drawn away from you by a flickering flame. Help us to see that Christmas is ultimately about the means by which we might be saved from our sins. And so we pray as we celebrate Christmas in just a couple weeks' time that we would remember the only reason this holiday even exists the only reason we celebrate is because God entered into his own creation. Because we are sinners. Help us to dwell on these things even in the next couple weeks. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Well, we're going to stand and sing one more song before we go ahead and close. So let's stand and sing our, our final song here. I want to thank you for joining with us for our carol service this evening, and we want to pray best for you and for your family, not just for the Christmas season, but for the year ahead.